Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? 411 Teen is a weekly program for teens, families, and other interested folks. 411 Teen provides a forum to examine and discuss various issues and events that confront, intersect, and sometimes interrupt our daily lives. Kia Brown is much more than her disability. She's a dynamic young black woman who continues to overcome challenges of being black and invisible, disabled but not unable. The Pretty One is a collection of essays exploring what it means to be black and disabled in a mostly able-bodied white society. Kia was the keynote speaker at the 25th Annual Family Cafe. The Family Cafe Cafe provides information, training, and networking for Floridians with all types of disabilities. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield, and joining me via Zoom platform, again, I welcome Kia Brown. Kia, much appreciation for you taking out of your busy schedule to talk with 411 Team. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm just delighted to have you. Why did you write The Pretty One? Who was your targeted audience? Well, and I think that there are a lot of authors who agree. I wrote the book first for me, so I was my target audience. (laughs) Okay. I I wanted to tell stories that I didn't have a chance to in my, like, one-off articles or essays. I'm a journalist by trade, and so... With, with, you know, word count and everything, there is a lot of things that you have to cut or keep and hold back. And I found that I had so many things I wanted to say about the world and pop culture and my place in it that I didn't have the chance to say in like a 2000 word article. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote the pretty one for myself so that I could really feel like I got all the things that I wanted to say or at least most of the things that I wanted to say out. And The Pretty One was born because I was really just given the opportunity to tell the stories I wanted to tell that didn't always center disability in the way that people expect Mm -hmm. disability to be centered in narratives. Well, it was well done. I mean, I felt like I was walking in your shoes. So I, you know, it was um, a very thorough um, and comprehensive book of what, one experiences. So I want to thank you uh, being being disabled. What was the significance of the title, The Pretty One? Well, I am a twin and my twin sister's name is Leah. And people in school always referred to her as The Pretty One. And by the time that I wrote The Pretty One, I realized like, oh, I can also be The Pretty One. Her being beautiful did not mean that I was inherently ugly. Her being pretty didn't mean that I was inherently unlovable. And it was just me really reclaiming the idea that in my body, as I am right now in that moment, I'm just as pretty as the person next to me and that it wasn't a competition. So that was really the significance of the title is me reclaiming the idea that I can also be pretty alongside my sister. Because we're on radio and people are unable to determine what your disability is, share with the listening audience, um, you know, what you're about. I mean, what your disability involves. Okay. Absolutely. So I am a 
Black disabled woman and my disability is cerebral palsy. And what that means for me is that it impacts the right side of my body. This means that I have a slower reaction time, limited motor skills all on the right side of my body. I walk with a limp every day um, and I cannot walk long distances like my body tires and I need to rest. And that's just what um, cerebral palsy looks like to me and for me physically, you know, mentally, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, just like everybody else, which is even though I like sort of abhor that phrase of being just like everybody else, <laughs> I think for me, disability is both physical and mental, like cerebral palsy is a neurological disability. And I find that what happens is like, I have a slower reaction time for things. I walk with a limp. I my my entire right side of my body is slower than my left and um multiple surgeries have meant that like my fingers on my right hand look different than everybody else they're like bent in a little in a couple of different ways and i don't have as much strength on the right side of my body okay. as a disabled person with cerebral palsy you coined the hashtag disabled and cute Yes. Can you tell us how that evolved? Absolutely. So <laughs> I I spent most of my life really feeling like I'd say around, you know, middle school years when you're like trying to figure out who you are and everything is changing. Like before that, I was so happy and I was such a precocious and like excitable kid. And then middle school happened and things started to shift in me. And I just started to think that I was ugly and, un and unlovable mm -hmm. and nobody liked me. And I thought my disability was a curse. And so I spent most of my life with that mindset and thinking that I didn't hold value that by the time that I was out of college and, you know, writing for the first time, I was publishing in all these great magazines. And I was like, meeting my idols, my writing idols, and they liked my work and everything was going well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought to myself, well, if people like your work, there has to be something about you that they also like. Like there has to be some value in you, Kia, the person writing the things that people like. And so what I did was, I'd say 2016 after Christmas, I started saying four things that I like about myself in the mirror every single day. So they would be things like, Kia, today I like your eyebrows, I like your nose, I like your ears, and I like that your friends can count on you. Or they would be like, today I like my shoulders and my knees and my fingers, and I like my taste in music. It was always three physical things, one non-physical thing. And I said that every single day and night, all the way up until February 12th. 2017, which is when the hashtag came out, because I wanted to celebrate that I finally felt good in my body, that I finally felt good about myself. And so I posted four of my favorite pictures and I hashtagged it disabled and cute because I realized disabled people can be both disabled and cute or hot or sexy or whatever. But I was really just celebrating myself for the first time, really truly in my life completely. And it allowed other disabled people to come together and celebrate themselves and start their own journeys towards self-love. So the reason the hashtag came about was really me celebrating myself first, but it turned into a community celebration. And for that, I'm going to be forever grateful. 
Oh, and I think everyone else will be grateful because what I hear you saying is that, you know, doing your formative years, um, you you experience some real negatives about self. And I think that comes out in the title of your book and your hashtag, um, where you are affirming self. And that's a powerful message to any community, but it's particularly powerful to the disabled community. So I, I applaud you on that. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, that, I thought that was great. I, you and your twin sister, who appear to be polar opposites, did you feel like you were in competition with her? Is that it what was, was a, going on? Yeah, I mean, it was a competition of my own making. I okay. think that the really nice thing about my sister Leah is that she was always sort of just waiting for me to see myself the way she did. You know, it was very, our competition was very one-sided. Mm -hmm. I think because we, because we are twins and we're the same age and it felt like, you know, I was constantly competing with her for like the attention of people that in hindsight, I didn't really want the attention of, I just wanted to know that it was possible. So I find that what happened was, now that I like in hindsight, what happened was that we, the only competition that we were in was like a one-sided thing. She was always just waiting for me mm -hmm. to see my worth and my value. And I was so I was always sort of thinking of her as like the person that's keeping me from happiness. But in mm -hmm. reality, it was really me keeping me from happiness. Um, and I think once I realized that, like once I went away to college and you know, we had some distance for the first time in our lives, it was like oh my gosh, I miss my sister. Like, I miss her so much. And mm -hmm. I wish she was here. And like, I wonder what she's doing. And I need to apologize for my behavior. And, and it was like, it all came rushing at me. But I but I think that the competition that I felt was absolutely one sided. And she sort of was just like, you know, thinking to herself, one day she'll get it. And, and thankfully, did. I did get mm -hmm. it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, self loathing creates its own type of how would I say, vulnerability. How did you turn this self-loathing around to self-love? Well, um, and I don't necessarily always recommend this to people, but I found worth in my work first. So me writing articles and essays and like meeting people that I admire and them actually liking it allowed me to think, okay, well, if they like your work, then maybe they'll, you know, maybe there's something of value about you. So my journey to stop being so self-loathing and start on my own journey of self-worth and self-love began with finding worth in my work. Um, and I think it was a really good starting point for me. I think what I realized is that, you know, as the years go on and, and the hashtag was created and my life has since changed, it's like, you know, I realized that there are ebbs and flows. So there are going to mm -hmm. be good days and bad days. But what I know is that I have the power and the ability to get myself out of the, you know, dark feelings and the sort of like self-loathing because I've done it before. So if I've done it once, I can do it again. And I tell myself, you know, there is worth in you, even if you have to find it in, you know, the thing that you're doing or the thing that people like, about you. And when I have really bad days, I just remind myself, okay, well, what do your family and friends think of you? 
And then, then, and then I can't refute that because then I would be calling them a liar and I don't want to be calling them a liar. <laughs> right. So I, I really kind of trick myself into uh, on my bad days and to remembering, you know, my value and my worth. Well, I think you have done an excellent job and you continue to, um, to do it. I, you have such a powerful message to share with everyone, not just the disability, uh, disability community, but all who may be going through changes for whatever the reason may be, okay? I tell you, I, I felt like I was really walking in your shoes when I, wrote, when I read your book. I mean, it was, it was really dynamic. Um, you mentioned, you said that you live uh, at the intersectionality of blackness, womanhood, and disability. Um, I'd like to have you talk about that. We're going to take a brief break for just 60 seconds, and we'll be right back, and then we'll talk about that. Just joining in, the program is 411 Teen, and I am talking with a dynamic young woman. Her name is Kia Brown. And she has a lot to say. She's written several books, but today we're talking about The Pretty One. Kia, before we went on break, I had said I wanted you to talk about um, and address the intersectionality of blackness, womanhood, and disability. Just what does that mean? Well, it just means that my experience is different than that of somebody who is not black disabled a woman and who is not a queer person. Um, for me, all of those intersections just mean that I experience life with, you know, a little extra hurdle. I find that as a as a black person particularly, talking about disability in some black spaces is not a thing that we do. And it's not a thing that we talk about outside of jokes. It's like Sometimes people are really afraid to even say the word disabled. Like, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just a little different. And I find that that, while well-meaning, actually does so much harm. Because if we can't even say the word disabled and talk about the realities of it, we're not going to have an actually equal society. And then the same goes with when you're in disability. If I can't talk to you as a disabled person about being Black and being queer, then we're not going to ever be equal. And then the same thing about like being a woman. If I can't talk to you about those, about being Black and disabled and queer and what those differences make for my lived experience, then I'm not going to be equal. And the same thing over and over and over again. It's like, mm -hmm. for me, intersectionality means being able to show up as my full self wherever I am and not being asked to divorce myself of things to make me fit into a neater box for one community over the other. Like I am black every day. I'm a woman every day. I am disabled every day. I am queer every day. I cannot take pieces of myself away in order to appease one group over the other. Mm -hmm. And for me, intersectionality genuinely just means that we're making space for everybody and that I don't have to make myself small to fit any one idea that I'm allowed to just be me and let that be celebrated, not just tolerated. Mm -hmm. 
Share some of the biases or the discriminations that you experienced as a black disabled girl, because it's one thing to talk about them in generalities, but I think it would be really enlightening for the listening audience to understand what you had to experience. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's also what I experience even now. It's okay. just this idea of people, specifically with disability, I would say that a lot of people get uncomfortable with the conversations around disability and they get uncomfortable even saying the word. And so if I go into a restaurant or, you know, a store or a mall, eight times out of 10, somebody's going to stop me and ask me what's wrong or oh, really? stare at me. Yes. Stare that at me. That rude? I mean, they will ask you that? Oh yeah. I get asked all the time. Um, people, people do this thing where they get, I guess they feel curious. And so they want to know like, what's wrong with you? Like I mean, I've had store clerks say, you know, like what happened? When was the accident? Really? Or um, people just come up to me randomly and say they're praying for me and asking, like there was one lady who told me that she didn't know what I did wrong. But once I repented, God was going to forgive me. And I was oh. just like in the store trying to buy something. And that's, what was said to me. And I think a lot of people feel, they feel like they're owed the answers to. And so a lot of times when I'm in public, in airports, wherever, you know, I travel a lot as a writer, people feel entitled to answers about me and what they see. And they're complete strangers. And they never really come to me with sort of like respect in their curiosity. It's always just like a demand. And so I deal with that very often. How do you deal with it? What is your response? I, well, initially it just sort of threw me off and I would be like, I would just like answer the question or be like, there's nothing wrong with me. But now I, I tell people they're not owed that information. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's like gauging the situation and depending on who you're talking to and like the reality of danger there. But I, I often say like nothing and I walk away or like, I just don't respond at all. And I walk away because I think I used to do the thing where I was too afraid not to answer because mm -hmm. I didn't want to seem like I was mean or again, you know, hitting that angry black girl stereotype. But now I just really have to protect my peace. And when people feel like they're entitled to answers just because they have a question, I tell myself, like, you don't owe them anything. The only person you owe something to is yourself. And so I really find myself just saying things like, nothing's wrong with me or, you know, not responding at all because I think there is no response that's going to make anybody truly satisfied, you know, because after I do tell them what happened, they just walk away like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, well, like somebody yeah. said to me in an Uber once, it was an Uber driver. I get in the Uber and he goes, he doesn't say hello or anything. He just says, what happened to your leg? And I said, nothing. I have cerebral palsy. And he's like, well, I guess it's good that you get out of the house. And I was like, well, yeah, I only have one life and I want to live it. And he said to me, um, yeah, I guess it's not that much of a life at all or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I just think no matter what, whether or not I said something or said nothing, that I'm not changing anyone's mind by answering their questions. You know, mm -hmm. it's just this quick thing that they're never going to think about again, but will stay with me much longer than it will them. And so I, I, you know, I really do take the time to think about it in terms of just deciding in the moment what 
my response will be. And lately, my response has been no response at all because I realized it's taking too much out of my time and day to explain the intricacies of disability to these people that don't really care. They sort of just view me like some sort of sideshow or like they're at a zoo and I'm an animal. Um, and, and I find that that's one of the most annoying things about being in public is having people, you know, ask me those sort of invasive questions. But also it's really nice to have people in my life who will, you know, rush to defend me uh, when need be. And and that's really the the thing that makes it that much easier is like when I travel for work or I do events like the one at the family cafe and, and when I do speeches and I meet people who really, you know, take something from my work. That's the thing that I hold closest to my heart because the rest of it, it's just like people feel entitled to me in a way that they will never have access to me for, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I find that it happens too a lot online as a visible person on the internet, people feel like they just need, they demand answers of me and they demand me give them like a rundown of my medical history. And it's so invasive and so mean and people want so badly to quote unquote cure me. But I always tell people, there's nothing cure you need to cure. There's nothing wrong with me. Right. What role have you found does one's culture play in confronting the dis their disability. I mean, I think that I would think that the dictates somewhat come from culture and the cultural um, attitude of disability and how we address it. But I thought I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, absolutely. I think culture plays a completely large role mm -hmm. in coming to terms with disability. I think specifically as a Black person, one of the things that I was so grateful for is that I have a mom who never, ever, ever made me think that there was anything wrong with me. Everything my sister and my older brother got, I got. They might have been modified, you know, um, bikes, scooters, skateboards, you name mm -hmm. it, I also got it. And so for me, that was imperative to how I see myself later and how I push past sort of you know, the idea that I can't do something because I was raised by a group of women and, you know, uncles and aunts who allowed me to see that no matter what, I held value. So whether or not I was disabled, we were going to find a workaround for whatever it was I wanted. Um, I think that that really allowed me to be the person that I am today. But I will say in terms of like a larger cultural, you know, lens, specifically with film and TV, it's like not seeing yourself represented, you know, is it really does impact the way that you see yourself in everyday life. Because when you're watching disabled people, and it's usually white disabled people, mind you, mm -hmm. when you're mm -hmm. watching white disabled people die in movies and TV shows and not have happy endings, you start to think like, is that all my life is? Is that what's possible for me? Mm -hmm. um, and I think we have a long, long, long way to go for true, genuine representation in film and TV. I think we're getting somewhere, but we're not where we need to be. And I find that for me, I need to see something in order to be something. And I think that the, I am the person that I am today and the writer that I am today and the creative that I am today because I have such a wonderful support system. Mm -hmm. But I will say that it is, it's very hard to exist in a culture where I know that stories like mine are few and far between, that I 
can flip on my favorite rom-com or, you know, my, read one of my favorite books and have to find myself in characters that don't look like me and don't understand my experience, which is why one of my favorite things in the world to do is to write books. And I'm glad that I get the chance to because I want to give young people, teenagers and young kids the chance to see themselves and not have to just go searching for mm -hmm. bits and pieces of themselves in books where they're not represented and not, you know, consider the main characters of their stories. Well, you said also that music played a major role in your life. I think music is so powerful because it can connect all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, music is a universal language. And since I was a kid, you know, going to my grandmother's house in the summers and, you know, even with my mom in the back of her in the back of her blue station wagon, music is this big uniter for me. And I find that I can't write without music. Like I need music constantly playing in the background in order for me to get mm -hmm. any work done. Um, and I and I think that it really has allowed me to express myself in many ways. And it has allowed me to feel like I wasn't alone when I felt my loneliest. I think that the really powerful thing about music is that it really says things for us that we can't find the words for. You know, like long before I ever wrote my first book, The Pretty One, um, and, and long after my most recent book, The Secret Summer Promise, music has been the way that I express myself. You know, I will sooner share, you know, lyrics to a Stevie Wonder song or, you know, songs from Whitney Houston as like, you know, statuses or like something on social media to showcase my sort of like emotional state or like what I'm feeling at the time, whether it's excitement or sadness or what have you, mm -hmm. um, than I will anything else. Because I think music really is this sort of universal language where we can express ourselves and say who we are. It's an extension of who we are, I think, in a way. And so when I'm at concerts and I'm singing along to my favorite artists and I'm just, or held up in my apartment, just like listening to songs that make me feel better or make me feel worse, depending. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that um, I'm, I'm my happiest. I, it's, music is my safe space in that way. Okay. It's the thing I always return to, um, whether I'm happy or sad or somewhere in the middle. Music is the thing that I always, always, always come back to, that I always turn to as a way to just express that feeling. Now, you describe yourself as, as having visible and invisible disabilities. Yes. Expound on that. Of course. So my physical disability is cerebral palsy. It's the thing you see when you see me walking or when you see my hand or, you know, when I'm resting because I can't walk long distances. That's the thing you can physically and visibly see. Mm -hmm. My invisible disabilities include chronic pain things okay. like, you know, knee aches, uh, chronic migraines. They include things like, you know, that are sort of in tandem with my cerebral palsy and completely separate. So I find that like when I'm having a bad pain day and my body just aches and like my knee is screaming or my leg hurts okay. or, you know, my ankle or whatever, those are my invisible disabilities that are impacted by my CP. But my chronic migraines and, you know, my anxiety, all of that is like its own invisible disability that I have to deal with every day. You know, I have you know, bouts of seasonal depression. So I have to also deal with that. 
And these are things that you can't necessarily see at all, but they still exist. And so that's the thing with visible versus invisible disabilities and the idea that like one is somehow better than the others. Like I don't subscribe to that. Mm -hmm. I think every disability is like, Mm-hmm. You know, there's no hierarchy to me um, in my, at least in my lived experience, because sometimes, you know, my invisible disabilities are just as debilitating I'm trouble with the connection. as, Let's try again later. I don't know what that was, um, but <laughs> my invisible disabilities are just as uh, debilitating sometimes mm-hmm. as my, as the ones that you can see as the visible disabilities. What is misogynoir? Okay, so <laughs> misogynoir is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw that, to my understanding, so I could be wrong, but to my understanding, it just means that it's the sort of understanding and it is the teaching of something, of like the lived experience of somebody who is multiple identities. So okay. somebody who is a woman, who is Black, who is black and xyz you know misogynoir mm-hmm. is not just it's it's a specific thing to black women where it's like we experience things with added so it's like racism but added misogynoir is like because we're black women or like added to something about being black as well and how it's a different ball game because it's expounded on each other you know it's mm-hmm. like i'm not just experiencing you know, misogyny, because that guy was like, the guy called me a bitch or whatever. It's like, I'm also experiencing racism on top of it. And and sort of like, what that means is just like, it all comes together and it compounds these negative feelings. Uh-huh. And these and these sort of like negative experiences, because again, I am multiple identities. But I think it is specific to Black women. Okay. It feels like like you're in a never-ending fight. Is that an accurate depiction that I'm getting? It just feels like, you know, no matter which way you turn, um, there's a fight. Yeah, um, I see exactly what you're saying. I think, okay. I think honestly, that's the truth. It's okay. not like, I think, yeah, no matter where you turn, there's always the fight. But I will say that I do find a lot of joy in my life and being the person that I am and that comes from, you know, the family that I have and the friends that I have and the people who love me deeply. Like, I don't think that my life is all doom and gloom and mm-hmm. just like constantly preparing to be hurt and upset. But the reality is that as a multiply marginalized person, I do have to constantly prepare for a fight. But there is joy too. And the joy is just as much my right as anything else. And so for me, it's very imperative that I focus on the joy, that even though I do have to prepare for a world not designed for me, prepare for a world not eager to see somebody like me succeed, you know, I'm not just having doors prop open because people are just excited to know me. Um, But I will say that to me, that's what makes the joy that I foster and that I find that much more imperative, that much more important because there is a fight around every corner. Uh-huh. And yeah, I can prep for that fight and I do, but I also allow myself the space to be a fully realized person, the space to be happy and to get excited about things and to be eager to see a movie or listen to a new band's album 
or be with my friends and family, go to parties, all that stuff. Like I find that because I know that life's not easy inherently for somebody like me, the way that I foster joy simply means that I have the chance to be happy despite all of it and that I deserve that chance. Well, hold your thoughts. Yeah. Hold your thoughts for a moment. We're going to take a brief break. Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. Just tuning in, the program is 411-TEEN. I am having a dynamic conversation with author Kia Brown. Um, Kia, you expressed a love for fashion. You know, clothes, uh, you were saying how clothes are a reflection of who you are and what you love. What is it like to shop for clothes when one has a physical disability, when one has the use of of one hand and, you know, the lack of full function of your arms and your legs? Like you were saying that, you know, you can't sing, you can't run, you can't dance. All these things that may be built into clothing are you finding that designers are sensitive to to your 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 and I guess others even limitations? Um, not always. I mm-hmm. will say, like me not being able to sing is more of a personal flaw <laughs> than it is <laughs> right than it is about disability. Because I know so many disabled people who have beautiful voices. Um, you know, the dancing is also a little bit of flaw of my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I will say. I think that not enough fashion designers and, and fashion industry as a whole is is at all sort of like attuned to the reality of shopping as a disabled person, nor are they eager to design for disabled people, which I find hmm. very frustrating because even though I can make a lot of like, you know, regular clothing, quote unquote, regular clothing work for me and my body, a lot of disabled people can't, you know? And so it's like they're buying something and then having to have that thing tailored and then having to, so they're buying it twice. They're having to buy it from the store, then have mm-hmm. it tailored, having to buy it from the store, then add on other things. And so I I am very much in a place of privilege where I'm able to wear, you know, the standard clothing, but it is, it is having to adjust things about it and make it fit to my body, but it's not easy shopping and like doing that work of going to like a store and figuring out things because I do get tired one you know all the walking you Mm -hmm. do get tired and also it's because a lot of places except for like five I'd say don't don't shop and don't create things I would say for disabled people like aside from Target that has a cat and jack line that is for kids Mm. um Zappos Tommy Hilfiger um, Open Style Lab is the is a business based in New York City, and they design they design items for disabled people. Like there's, it's very small the amount of um, accessible clothing that disabled people have specifically. So it is up to us to find ways to express ourselves in clothing that is not designed for us, and that can be exhausting and very expensive. And even though I really, truly, and I will always believe 
that clothing is an ex an expression of who we are as people and like it is a second way for us to introduce ourselves to the world it's not always easy to find things that fit well and make you feel good when your body is not the typical you know straight sized body that people expect it to be and you find that manufacturers aren't aren't responsive to your needs have and I don't mean just your needs, to the needs of the disability community. There's a lot of disabled folks that I'm sure it's always about money. Right. <laughs> and I think, right. I think I think outside of the, the places that I listed, it's like not enough people care. Okay. And they uh -huh. should because disabled people, you know, we also have to buy clothes and wear clothes. Like we're spending money in this mm -hmm. market. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's extra frustrating to me because it's like we're giving you our money so they're like why can't you see the value in our dollar as you do everybody else you know and I think a lot of that is because fashion is sort of built on this idea of exclusivity mm -hmm. when I think that inclusivity could make the fashion industry so much more money by being inclusive and, and I think it's it's high time that we add to that list of of people so that it's not so much a marvel every time somebody does something that's designed with disabled people in mind like it shouldn't be a big news thing or a miracle that, that this one company decided to care about their disabled consumers it should mm -hmm. be an everyday constant thing so that people have options because i think we deserve options as much as the next person talk about your biggest challenge that you have encountered to the state and how you have addressed it? I love yeah. that question. I think my, my biggest challenge is reminding myself that I belong in every room that I enter, that I have just as much right to be wherever I am when I am. Um, because sometimes I, I find myself as a person who was like, you know, predispositioned mm -hmm. to sadness and predispositioned to worrying about what people think of me, that I find myself sometimes getting lost in that and letting, you know, the thoughts and opinions of people who don't know me well impact how I see myself. And so I think my biggest challenge to date is just constantly reminding myself that I hold value and that I matter and that I don't have to do anything spectacular to matter. That just by existing as I am right now, I'm not only enough, but I matter. And then I don't have to, you know, complete this big thing or that big thing, or, you know, mm -hmm. have this one huge magical thing happen in my life for me to hold value, that I'm loved just like this, and that I deserve that love. How do you get there? I think it's a day by day process. You know, every single day, I say my four things. I remind myself that I am loved by my friends. You know, I, I ask for it when I need it. You know, if I need a compliment, I will I will ask for a few. If I need a moment of just like doing nothing and listening to music that makes me feel good, I will do that. If I need accommodations, I will ask for them. I think it's really just about being vocal and being honest. And so what I say to myself every day is today is a chance for you to be exactly who you are. That's what I say to mm -hmm. myself every day. And I try to remember that 
asking for help is not a bad thing, you know, because mm-hmm. disabled people are often conditioned to believe that we're burdens because people will hem and haw when they need to help us. But I find that just being honest about what I'm feeling that day or how I'm feeling that day has allowed me to be more open with the people that I love and be more honest about the things that I need. And so really just being able to ask for what I need is how I get there. And I have to do it every day Mm -hmm. because it's everyday work. There's no, you know, days off. Mm -hmm. Can you offer suggestions to young folks who are disabled, young folks who encounter multiple struggles and sometimes wonder, is it worth it? Can I well, need to continue yeah. on? Yeah. I mean, I think I would start by saying it is worth it. You know, you deserve a life that's well-lived and you deserve to be well-loved. And it's not about despite disability. It's in tandem with disability. Your disability doesn't make you inherently less at all. Or you mm-hmm. as a person, whether you're disabled or not, like you deserve the chance to live and not only live, but to thrive and not only thrive, but survive. Like you deserve the chance to be with people who will love you. Even if you don't have people that, you know, you feel love you right now, like those people are coming. I think a lot of times we tell ourselves things have to be perfect. And if they're not perfect, then, you know, what's the point? But I think life is a series of little imperfections, but it's about the joy that you find, the beauty that you can find in those imperfections that matter the most. And so I would say to young people, I know you're in a really tough spot and it feels like nobody gets it and nobody understands what you're going through, but you're not alone, even when it feels like it. And there are people ready and willing to not only hear your story, but love you and your story alongside you. I think I am who I am because of the people that I love and who love me in return. Like I am made up of the people who love me. And I think even while you're scared and uncomfortable, asking for help will help you get through even your worst days. Because I found that if I would have started asking for help sooner, Mm -hmm. I would have gotten to a much better place mentally, emotionally, and physically, honestly. Um, and so I would say to you, please keep going. I know it's hard, but you have a story to tell. And there's somebody out there somewhere waiting for you to tell it. And I believe in you. So if so, if somebody hasn't said it to you yet, please know that I, Kia Brown, a mere stranger, believes in you and wants you to keep going, even when it's hard, even when it's scary, even when you feel like giving up. Please don't give up. Believe in yourself. I believe in you. And take it day by day. You're going to have ebbs and flows, and it might not always be easy, but please, please, please keep going. You say you wish you had asked for help uh, earlier. What prohibited you in doing that? I think it was a lot of fear and, and, and sort of discomfort because as a disabled person, I felt sort of like I was already asking for too much by merely having to have things adapted to me. So it was like, if I had to ask for breaks with walking or I had, or my body ached and I had to stop, you know, playing with my cousins and my sister for a little bit, or if I had like doctor's appointments or surgeries or whatever, that's what prohibited me from, you know, asking for help. It's just thinking like, oh, I'm already asking for too much by being disabled and people have to do too much mm-hmm. to adjust to loving me and caring about me. 
But had I actually asked for help and told people how I was feeling when I was younger, I think I would have gotten to this place that I'm at of self-love and understanding faster. Mm -hmm. What about parents and their role? I mean, how can they advocate and support their children? Uh, what do they need to know that you think they don't know? Um, I, let's talk I think about you need that. to know that your child is a person first, that you should ask your children how it is they want to be referred to, what it is they want, and understand that they're not just extensions of you, but they're their own people. One of the best things my mom ever did for me was, again, treat me like she did any of her other kids. Mm -hmm. She didn't baby me. She never made me feel like, you know, I couldn't do something because I was disabled. She never once said to me, oh, no, we're not going to try that because you can't do it mm. because you're disabled. She mm -hmm. believed in me full stop. She, she never let me give up on myself or say no before even trying. And I want that for all disabled kids. I want them to have parents who treat them with respect and understanding. And I know that just because they have to adapt to something doesn't mean they can't do it. Doesn't mean it's not possible. My mom was very much like, Tia, whatever it is, you got it. We're gonna figure it out. And, and whether or not you succeed doesn't make you somehow less to me. You know, she never was like, oh, I have to baby her because I don't want her to fail. I have to, you know, do this or that because I want to protect her. She protected me, but she also let me fail. She let me make mistakes. She let me try things that didn't work out every time. Like she just allowed me to be a kid. And I would say mm -hmm. that that's what parents need to do for their disabled kids is allow them to be kids, allow them to make mistakes, allow them to try things. And even if they don't work out, that's okay. Because I find that a lot of disabled adults that I've talked to, they didn't have that same experience with their parents that I had with my mom. They had parents that were sort of like coddling and afraid to let mm -hmm. them sort of exist as people. And that was one of their biggest regrets as adults is that they didn't get to experience being an actual kid. And so that's what I always say to, to parents. It's like, be there for your child. Support your child, love your child, but also let your child be a child and make mistakes and figure it out. Because despite, you know, what a lot of parents hope is like, you're not going to be there for every single moment of their lives. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes they're going to go to school and have some kid making fun, make fun of them in a cafeteria. Sometimes they're going to go to school and not have a good day or you're not going to be there at a thing when you think you should be. So it's like you have to give them the tools to stand up for themselves and to, you know, exist in moments without you and still feel like they carry you with them. Because that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Whenever I travel and I do events and I'm writing books and whatever, working on a musical, I always carry pieces of my mom with me. And I call her every time and I'm like, we have such a great relationship because she allowed me to be a child and to feel like you know, I had my own options and I had my own thoughts and ideas. And I think as an adult now, that made our relationship that much richer because she is my mom and she's mm -hmm. also one of my friends. And she's also this person that I can turn to when I just like when I'm having a bad day and I just want to like, you know, take a moment to feel my feelings. It's like I can turn to her and I don't see her as this person who took things from me before even letting me try that. And I think that that's it's a beautiful thing, the relationship that we have, and I want that for all people, but I think it's only possible 
when parents allow their kids to be kids and allow them to mess up, make mistakes, you know, scrape their knees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that that will make their relationship as adults when the kids get older that much richer. Tell us briefly, we've only got a couple minutes, about okay. your books. Um, okay. I know The Pretty One is the first one, and that's yes. what we're supposed to be talking about, but I know you have some other books also. Yes. So The Pretty One is a memoir of essays that we've been talking about. Please go buy it. I have a children's book called Sam's Super Seats that teaches kids the importance of rest. And my most recent book is called The Secret Summer Promise, and it's about a girl wanting to have the best summer ever, and she realizes that she's in love with her best friend. So the secret item on her best summer ever list is to fall out of love with that best friend and into love with somebody else. And mm -hmm. it's a sweet summer love story that I think will be great for teens. And, you know, maybe you can read it with your kids. And mm -hmm. it's just a really cute story. Now, where can one purchase these books? Okay, they're all on Amazon. Um, th they're available at Barnes & Noble uh, or anywhere books are sold. Okay. Um, one more question before we close. Okay. And um, I guess a two, but I, I don't think I'll get the two in. I'm trying to decide which one. I got two of them in my head. First of all, is there anything that I have overlooked um, that maybe you think any particular point that needs to be made just about coping and existing in an alien culture that that in, invalidates your very existence. Anything that you well, would like to say, you know, just briefly. Uh, yeah, just briefly. Briefly, I would say that I would want to tell parents that disabled is not a bad word. It's okay to say the word disabled. You have a disabled child. It's, all these euphemisms for disability only ever really hurt children because they make them think that there's something, you know, dirty or wrong about being mm -hmm. disabled and there's nothing. So I would say, please just think about that when you're speaking of your child and allow them to tell you what they want to be identified as. But because a lot of us really, you know, prefer to put the power back into the word disabled. Kia, it's time out, but I would like to really extend my sincere appreciation. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to meet you and talk with you. You know, when they say dynamic, I, I, that's not even enough. So Thank many, you so much. many, many thanks to Kia Brown, author of The Pretty One. Um, and two other books. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your evolution as a black disabled female. To my thank you for having me again. Oh, thanks for coming. And to my listening audience, much appreciation for your time and your ear. Tune in next week, same time, same place, to get the 411 on 411 Team. Four One One Team was produced by Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Technical assistance was provided by Evan Rossi. If you would like to participate in the Four One One Team or have suggestions for discussion topics, call 850-645-7200. Four One One Team archives are available as streaming audio at wfsu.org.